This is Emmy Award-winning creative and marketing executive John Ziegler. It's time to disrupt your business model. Welcome to the Nontrepreneur. Barbara, thank you for joining me on The Nontrepreneur today. Your breadth of business experience and success spans so many industries, health and wellness, international business development, education, the not-for-profit that you currently run and the many others you've been involved with, the entertainment industry. You have literally been taught by Nobel Prize winners. You have sat with the Dalai Lama. You bring so much wisdom and perspective at a time when we need it absolutely the most. On The Nontrepreneur, we talk about fostering environments where employees are empowered and leaders are enlightened. But all that comes down to the individual. We talk about the acronym CAMP, creativity, awareness, mindfulness, passion, and people. And the individual has to adopt and ultimately embody these tenets. So what I wanted to talk with you about today were those tenets, where maybe I'm missing a tenant or missing an opportunity to enlighten the folks that listen to this podcast. So before I kind of get into my questions for you, can you tell the listeners how you went from working with Michael Douglas and Richard Simmons to owning the Farmhouse Retreat Center in Pennsylvania? <laughs> well, we could even go a little bit before that as a, you know, being a swimming and diving coach and then being an assistant producer to NBC News, you know, in, in Philadelphia. So, which I'm not from, but happen to wind up here. So yeah, how do we get from, from the pool to the pond, which is what I have at the farmhouse? Did you just make that oh, up? Like, Gosh, <laughs> that's the title of the book. Oh, my gosh. I know. I have another book that I'm going to write. Holiday Inns I Have Known. When I was on the road with Harry Chapin, we always had, you know, you're staying in the Holiday Inn. And there was only <laughs> one room that we all went to to do things in the 70s that we don't do anymore. And don't you do that. Mm -mm. You do that. But we did. <laughs> Being honest here. I've got a lot of titles for a lot of, of books. But first, Thank you. And you are welcome. And thank you very much for the invitation to be here. This will be very interesting. And I hope it will be beneficial for anyone who chooses to listen in. You're doing such great work. And I think you've really covered everything, really, in your acronym, which is, is really brilliant. Creativity, awareness, mindfulness, passion, and people. This is what we want to have in every day of our lives, in every aspect of our lives. I feel Strongly that it's not just something reserved for the workplace or for whatever area of avocation, vocation, family life, spiritual life, whatever. There's no separation between any of it. And if you don't practice it every single day, wherever you are, you can't just walk into work one day and magically you're going to flip the switch. And I'm going to be incredibly creative and passionate today. It's got to be a lifestyle. And that's precisely why I needed to have you on the podcast. I mean, you've been a Buddhist practitioner for over 50 years. You have written on your website, a space for creativity and calm amidst a turbulent world. Yes. The world couldn't be any more turbulent than it is today. And I think we could all use a little more creativity and calm in our daily lives. So I'm so excited that right out of the gate, you've identified the fact that these aren't just tenants for a productive workplace culture, but tenants that could help govern and guide your life. Well, we hope so. I mean, if we don't all do this, what kind of a life are we going to have? And I would hope that you know, even though lots of us wear many hats, of course, I do just because it's been a question of I'm very curious. So I suppose I was given that by the way that I was raised. You know, my mom and dad, we moved. She was a teacher and then she went back to get her master's and PhD when she was, I think, in her 60s for being able to be a guidance counselor for children and then you know, she was a principal of schools, but was a language teacher before that. But she was also a code breaker in World War II. I didn't even know that until I was an adult. So you have someone like that who's just 
living her life every single day, moving five kids, there were six, but five and a cat and a dog around the world every two years. You've got to be very creative to do that. And your husband, who she was a magna cum laude at Brown University, my father was, didn't graduate high school. One of the most brilliant men I know because he was an electrical engineer who was the troubleshooter for an international corporation. If there was a problem on an installation, that's where we went. Okay, we got the map out. And we thought it was perfectly normal. So <laughs> there was this immense creativity going on, but they didn't call it that. Hearing the stories of, of my father sitting with the Bolsheviks in 1917 up in the hills of the Sierra Madres. So he had a, an awareness Again, getting back to your tenants, and I do go in spiraling concentric circles oftentimes when I talk, so just stay with me. There was an awareness that he had that he had to listen to everyone, and he was very strong and very firm in his beliefs. As we got older, he and I diverged politically in our beliefs, but we always had a conversation. He was mindful of the fact that you have to have a conversation and be open-hearted and open-minded. So when you're engaging with, with people. They all come from different places, different backgrounds. Get rid of the preconceived notions, which are very difficult to do. You know, perception is our reality. It's not the reality. You know, there are three versions, right, of the truth, yours, mine, and the truth. <laughs> so, you know, really being mindful of that. And he was a great teacher just by, again, the ledger of his daily life. He wasn't some big, famous, whatever. He wasn't my mother as well. They just did what they did every single day from a place that was so amazing. And that's what I got to grow up in. I got to see this. Were they perfect people? No, of course not. But having an appreciation of just how they did what they did and those things that they instilled in that awareness and that mindfulness, we moved so much that in terms of going to a church, it was just, oh, here's a Catholic church nearby. Go to, we're going to go to that one for a couple of years. Okay, there's a Lutheran. There's a Missouri Synod. There's a Presbyterian. There's a Buddhist, there's a whatever. They just said, okay, it's wherever we happen to be because they didn't judge, they didn't label, they didn't any of that either. So I didn't get any of that. And I think moving around as much gave a great deal of versatility and appreciation for, of course, peoples around the world that were all looking for the same thing. We're all looking for an end of suffering. We're all looking for happiness, contentment, equanimity, being able to take care of our families, being able to have productive work. And that's different for everyone. So what our work is, we want to have it to be productive and also something that has purpose, right? So if we're going into a job and we're not feeling like we're part of the process in some way, then we can get burnt out no matter what it is. We have gone in loving what we're doing and then it can quickly turn into a grind. And it shouldn't be because we do spend more time there if we are employed by someone else. You know, we spend too much of our time in Actually, as you know, when you're working in the environment of the entertainment industries and television and you're on set, when I was proud union member, IATSE, SAG-AFTRA, you know, you spend more time with them than you do with your family. So they do become a family. They are those people and you need to have a passion for what you're doing and a passion for who you're doing it with as well for it to really have the outcomes that we want, no matter what it is. And we're all contributing to making, you know, the whole greater than the sum of the parts, right? Your passion for people is evident in the work you do now. When did you move from industry to not-for-profit? And I realized, you know, I didn't really answer your question before I went We'll get there. To you. Now, how did I get from A to B to Z? I skipped, yeah, probably L, M, N, you know, somewhere <laughs> along the line. 
But again, really quick, I'll try. So swimming and diving coach, passionate, loved it. I was a competitor, absolutely was a diver and a swimmer. Had a very serious accident that left me pretty debilitated for a couple of years in terms of mobility as a diver. That's when I started coaching, started working with young people. It was absolutely phenomenal to be able to do that. And again, you're working with people. This is a great thing. And helping them excel in whatever way that they want to. And that's when I also started an awareness and understanding of a healthcare. It wasn't called sports medicine, but how are you going to have better performance, better recovery? So I always looked at working with the, with the kids in a holistic manner even then. Loved it. Passionate. Had to pay the bills saw that that really wasn't going to be paying the bills. So a friend who was a really brilliant cameraman, he was a documentary film, 16 millimeter film cameraman. Sure. On to be one of the most brilliant film camera operators in the film industry, movies, I suppose. I don't know if I can mention any names, but... Please. Well, he was, you know, Sophie's Choice, Witness, you know. I said, you know, I have to do something else. He was a friend. He said, well, I have a friend. We all take care of each other in some way. We're always looking out in some way. I have a friend. I'm always one to say, okay, I'll go talk to him. I just walked into the NBC studios and talked to this wonderful producer of news and said, I can do this because I have this ridiculous sense of confidence that my parents gave me because we were always the new kid on the block, always. But it seemed perfectly normal because our parents didn't make it seem like it was otherwise. So again, parents have a lot to do with the environment, the mental as well as emotional, psychological, physical environment of their children. So it's got to think about that too. Yeah. And he said, sure, I'll teach you. He became an incredible mentor, incredible mentor. I spent one year in news and realized it was all bad news. Not unlike what we're seeing as the top stories today. And this is many, this is decades later, which is heartbreaking because there are places that will give a little more balanced reporting. We've got to watch what we're feeding our brains Mm. if we are going to be able to tap into your acronym. If you're feeding your brains with toxic information and you don't have some kind of healthy boundary to deal with it, we can reach a sense of why bother being creative or aware or mindful? Why bother? You know, but that's not who we are as, as people, as humans, as human beings. It's not our nature. So, but I saw that I didn't really want to contribute to what the first top stories were and do that. And how wonderful, how auspicious that the Mike Douglas show, not Michael Douglas, he's married to a gorgeous woman who's incredibly <laughs> talented. I mean, he's okay too, Michael Douglas. Mike Douglas is the Irish tenor who had this remarkable talk show in the, uh, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. An amazing fellow. And you know what? He, he taught a lot as well. If we just look around us, wherever we are, we're always learning from whoever if we'll be willing to learn from whoever in whatever way. And he was somebody who, he was coachable. You know, he was a team player. He he didn't have that ego you would think from someone who was on camera and was the Mike Douglas show. He was a sweetheart. May he rest in peace, you know, and he gave so many people an opportunity to shine on his show. So again, there's a lesson for us. It wasn't about him as the Mike Douglas show being the one out front He made it possible that everybody else could tell funnier jokes, sing better songs, do these crazy skits that he always had. Everybody had a skit, whether it was Sean Connery or John Lennon and Yoko Ono, everybody had to do a little skit. So his ego was really put aside to let other people shine. That's so important as an entrepreneur, I think, that for be able to 
to as a leader create that leadership it's it's really about service it's about service so let those other people you know participate be at the table equally with everybody else so fortunate to walk into the production manager and say yeah i can do this I, <laughs> but it was at a time where apprenticeship was still a part of the culture i think it wasn't actually called an apprenticeship but you know i mean so i could learn and I loved learning. I still do. I'm always learning. I will always learn. We have to. I learn from you. I learn from everyone. So you leave the Mike Douglas show. I leave the Mike Douglas show because I was not thinking I was going to be married with children. And I got married and my son was born and I was still working at the show. And then I found out about an institute in Philadelphia. Uh, it's based in Philadelphia. It's an international institute that a friend of mine said, I think you'd be interested in this. Again, so grateful for these friends of ours who hear something and put connections together and they're aware enough, you know, and they're curious enough as well. So I went on my, uh, on a week holiday that I had. It was profound. In the middle of the week, I quit the show. I quit the station. I quit the union. I said, I found something much more important to do. My son was 18 months old. I knew that glorified daycare. I don't mean to diss any daycares, but I mean just changing diapers. I saw in this, as every baby is, as the brain is growing so phenomenally, there is something else there that we can joyously, creatively, mindfully develop rather than just, you know, waiting for the clockwork. Oh, where they're going to creep at this, they'll crawl here, and then they're going to creep, and then they're going to walk, and there's certain set ages. That's nonsense. The brain doesn't work that way, or else there would be no creativity. I mean, creativity just wouldn't exist. It's not a that kind of a progression at all. You can speed that up, you can slow it down. You can slow it down by a car accident, cord around the neck with the oxygen loss to the brain, and you're drowning. You can take a nine-year-old back to a two-year-old neurologically, but you can then speed up the process in some very non-invasive ways. And so I took all the courses and I took all the certifications there and spent many years in a pediatric neurological organization and development, working with brain injured children and, and with well kids. So that was phenomenal. However, that didn't pay the bills either. So <laughs> I had to get another job. Uh, you know, I had this experience in the entertainment industries, which I love. I mean, it is. I mean, there is something so magical about being on set or being in the studio, being with this immense creativity. I found that my role uh, on the union was I really was best at telling everybody what to do. Yeah. <laughs> stage manager. Being a stage manager, obviously growing up the way I did, and very good at organizing, taking the bigger view, and that then becomes what's a producer. Everybody I became a producer. But I, I really had a heart for music. I always wanted to be a jazz musician since I was five. I didn't get to do that until I was about 40 years old, but I did it because I had a passion for it. So that's so important to hold on to. I knew it was going to happen. It was just a question of when. But again, being a jazz musician, you have to play well with others too. You have to have all of those things that you've got in your camp to be able to be on stage or be in the studio and make something that's that people are going to really appreciate and, and feel because it's a direct connection. That communication is directly heart to heart. We get out of that cortex and that, that prefrontal cortex that gets us into so much trouble sometimes and go right to the heart. So that's something we want to think about and consider in all of this as well. So that was kind of cooking along, but I didn't get to do that until later. But music was always important. So I had an opportunity to, well, be the adjunct to a 
a post-production house and mm-hmm. they needed a, they wanted to have a music studio side so that the advertising agencies could do their video post and get their music for their jingles and what an eye opener that was for me. But it was a great experience and I learned a heck of a lot and I learned that the men were getting paid so much more than the women that I said, okay, bye. Wow. Because it's just a reality. I had to take care of my family. So single moms, they're entrepreneurs. Didn't plan on being a single mom, got a divorce, but got to take care of my son. I then have my daughter who was born with a brain injury eight years, nine years after doing clinical work and working with brain injured children and well kids. I had to fix my own daughter, which was fabulous that I was able to do that. Wow. And do that around paying the bills as well. So you get very creative. As I say, you have to have this creativity, awareness, mindfulness in the midst of, you know, Hurricane Laura or Agnes or whatever it is, life. You know, sometimes you're juggling alligators and axes and chainsaws, you know, and sometimes it's just balls, you know, in between. But we're all doing it to some degree. And we're doing it at work as well as we're doing it at home. It's life. It's all life. There shouldn't be a separation between any of it. You know, we should bring ourselves 100% to the table wherever we are with all of these wonderful things that you have in your acronym. So this is wonderful. And then when I was working there, I'm hoping people will learn something from this story. I'm not quite sure if they will or not. Maybe you'll be able to tie it all together. But there was a, a company that we were doing music for. They did two minute direct response commercials and the underscore for those. And they decided to go into the longer format. They actually developed a 30-minute infomercial. Then they went into the celebrity spokesman world. So we had a lot of really wonderful celebrity spokesmen, people doing different educational, informational, right? So, but selling a product, but it was good because you were getting more information. And there were really a couple of good companies doing that. There were a couple of really not so good ones, like the car wax that would burn the paint off your car. But you know, that's entrepreneurism in America. What can sure. we say? You know, the buyer beware. So they wanted to do something that was very, very different and do an exercise kind of video thing, which had never been done before. And they were interviewing some people and one of them happened to have really curly hair and little short shorts and stripes on it. And he wasn't wearing a tank top by any chance, was he? He was wearing a tank top. And his tank top was just a regular tank top, but his tank top got to be pretty amazing with Swarovski crystals on them, you know? <laughs> Wardrobe designer, Leslie Wilshire, she was phenomenal. These are the most beautiful, beautiful tank tops. And he would donate them for charity events. It was so wonderful. The he in question here is Richard Simmons. Of course. Uh, absolutely brilliant, beautiful human being. So creative, so passionate. So aware and a people person to the nth degree. Any, I mean, he created an entire industry. And I was so fortunate to become his music director, his music supervisor, his music producer, and learn so much then from that. But it was also juggling being based on the East Coast, get on a plane, seven o'clock in the morning, fly to LA, have meetings and fly back to take care of, you know, kids and things. But again, learning so much and learning again, we're in an environment of a team, a true team of people who are collaborating and cooperating to make something better than the sum of its parts, you know, with that commitment. Maybe that's another C, I don't know, commitment to all of these things. There has to be a commitment to that. So yeah, that was a great, beautiful, beautiful ride. I mean, also did music for, you know, produced music for when Jane Fonda did her series of um, exercise videos, but lots of other infomercials. And then as everything else, you know, the industry changed and 
the music business changed and the internet came sure. along. And then you have to get very creative. And then you have a 14-year-old daughter whose best friend is shot and killed in a murder-suicide. And that's what got us to the, the Farmhouse Retreat and Wellness Center. A couple of stops along the way. A couple of stops along the way. But, but music publishing, music production, paying those, you know, the publishing with residual income, paying the bills. And when this happened, Alexandra was 14. Her mom was a friend. And the stepfather came home. This is in the mainline suburb of Philadelphia. This gun violence in America is not, you know, it's not just a, a big city problem. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Access to these, these weapons of destruction is, is a big one. But there's a lot more that goes into it. A lot more, as we know. But there are things that we can and should be doing and should have done. What happened to Alexandra? A stepfather who should not have been able to purchase a handgun and then was in a domestic dispute. And just this was you know, 80% of the homicides in Philadelphia, and actually probably most of them, I will go out on a limb and say, are conflict resolution. That's a nice way of saying they're just solving an argument by getting a gun. We're not yeah. going out on the playground or duking it out. No, I know where the gun is, and I'm going to go get to solve this problem. And that's, that's a tragedy. It's an American tragedy that we've been living with. So I didn't know that much about it at that time. However, I did see what it did to this group of, my daughter was at a, at a girl's school. I wanted to put her in a smaller class environment. She's very, very well from her brain injuries. She's brilliant, brilliant young woman, 33, and absolutely proud of her. However, it's a lot of people learn better in a smaller environment. A lot of people learn better in a bigger, some are visual learners, auditory learners, et cetera, finding the best place. And this was a great private school. And it was all girls and not that I, but she was, when I put her there, she was in a French school because she's trilingual. So she did the French school and then went there 11 or 12. And middle school can be an interesting time for anybody. Talk about having to be creative. To survive middle school, you have to be there creative, wherever you are. The school just wasn't set up to handle this kind of a traumatic event. And having the experiences that I've had in my life, I stepped up and said, you know, I can't watch these kids be in this post-traumatic stress state at 14 with hormones going all over without doing something. So I just said, I'm going to do a town meeting. Well, if you'd do the same thing. You'd say, hey, here's a problem. Just like at work, if you see a situation that needs a solution, you step up and do it, right? Sure. Prayerfully, hopefully, mindfully, with all of your camp, camp, camp. We'll keep we'll keep adding letters so to we'll it. Keep adding to it, right? And that's what got me into the world of having a nonprofit. I had no idea that I would, but there was a problem that needed a solution. Problem mm. solvers, that's what we do. I mean, I spent 10 years as the head of the Brady campaign. So the Million Mom March merged with the chapters of, of the states for gun violence prevention with the Brady campaign. And I was asked to revitalize the Pennsylvania chapters. So I did that and crisscrossed the state as a volunteer, you know, and just really steeped myself in the understanding of gun violence in America, all aspects of it, not just what people want to see through their own lens. We have to open our hearts and minds and see all the things that factor in in our preconceived notions and then also get to the root causes and symptoms. There are other things that can be done. So I lobbied in Harrisburg and in Washington, D.C. until I realized that working in the communities on the ground with the people and seeing kids and families in constant traumatic stress, constant, not post, constant. They needed a safe place. They needed a place to heal and to feel safe and to do whatever it is they needed to do. 
And then being a musician, I thought I'd bring the arts in as well because musicians and are and not just that, writers, any kind of painters, let's have a place where well, they can all come and we can have who knows what will happen. Just provide the space, right? Same thing I think in, in an environment in a corporation. It's creating that space, whether physically or metaphorically, you know, figuratively, that there is that space for that kind of development to occur and maybe not know exactly what's going to happen because I don't know sometimes. I just have the spaces here for people to come and use. And it's been here for a lot of different things over the years. I love the way you put that, provide the space. Now, the Farmhouse Retreat Center is a physical space, but like you said, it's also a metaphoric space, but just the term provide the space. If I can provide the space to hear your perspective, if you can provide the space to hear my perspective, just a wonderful term, provide the space. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's something very germane to what you're doing and what you're teaching folks who work in the corporate structure. I mean, I left the corporate structure because I am still a free radical from the, <laughs> not only a free radical in terms of, you know, I don't really steal anybody's electron from there. You know, I'm not going to take your electron, but I am a radical free radical still, I suppose, in the way I think about things and the way I was raised and what I've seen in my life. And I found it was, it, I would work harder and better for myself than in a corporate environment. Because again, at that time, there weren't a lot of corporate environments that encouraged what we now know must be encouraged if you want to have a successful company. You can't ignore people's own needs for all of the things that you're talking about. And they shouldn't have to divorce them when they walk in the door to work. And it is that free radical spirit that I want to talk about. Go ahead. They should be what? <laughs> well, they should be cultivated. They should be encouraged. They should be supported. They should be able to cause good trouble. <laughs> <laughs> knowing that this is not a threat to the folks who are, you know, at the upper echelon of this tier of, of management. This is not a threat. Understand that this is going to secure your job. This is going to secure your business, your company, when you allow them to have a voice, when you allow them to have that space to explore that spirit within themselves. Not everybody wants to or should be owning their own business. We know that they have to have a certain appreciation and understanding of, of taking risks. You aren't an entrepreneur without risk-taking. Maybe they don't have the knowledge or the time or the capital, or they think they don't. But again, our thoughts are what create our reality. So actually, they do have the time, and they do have the, they can find the knowledge, and they can get the money. Those are all things that can be done if they have someone help, help them, show them the way if we work together. Too often, however, you've got this competitive, non-collaborative environment. Just the opposite is what makes things, in my opinion, and what I've seen in my life, and that's the only thing that I can look at, is that the more companies or the more individuals or the more small businesses or the more families or the more whatever organization has been cooperative and collaborative in nature are the ones that are the most successful and the ones that draw more people to them. So that's what we want to do. So if we're going to encourage that environment, and we have to, again, number one, get your ego out of the way. You know, when I was producing in the studio, I was always say, I'm not making any of these doors bigger for your head to fit through. <laughs> I don't care how you could be the greatest musician on the planet, the most renowned, and I've worked with some of the most wonderfully talented musicians in the world. Oh my gosh, these are amazing. And I find that the bigger the talent, truly, the more humble and appreciative they are. 
the more creative, typically across the board, I can say that. Working with Jimmy Stewart, oh my gosh, Jimmy Stewart? Here's somebody who was at the top of his game. I mean, had done so much and could not have been kinder, could not have been more caring. And I find that with musicians who create the best music, truly, over time, it, it just, it tells. People know, the audience knows, your coworkers know, the workers know about the management, who's going to be the most, they know. They may not say anything because of fear. Now, how can you work in fear? I mean, that's mm. one of the things that's got to go off the table immediately. If you really want to have a successful life and your life is your work and your business and everythingness, it can't be lived in fear. So you have to foster this environment that you're talking about, which is brilliant. It's wonderful. And I hope these people are listening to you. So then Gosh, let's, get in, <laughs> let, let's get into it then, because we've, we've taken them from pool to pond. And I told myself I wasn't going to ask you kind of the, the same questions that I asked you know, the folks that I've had on. But I, I do want to slide this one in because I, I'm going to be surprised by your answer. I'll be surprised, too. <laughs> <laughs> do you and the reason I'll be surprised is because you just seem to have navigated the waters of life so beautifully. Do you have advice you would have given your younger self? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting because I, I probably wouldn't have listened. Well, it's <laughs> that. You know, because I was too busy doing. You know, I mean, I, I think oftentimes we we overthink situations and then we get paralyzed into inaction. I didn't ask how. People say, how can I do that? Or I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't. I knew I could always learn how. And again, here's Simon Sinek, decades later, right? Sure. I think he's wonderful, fabulous, but you know, you wouldn't have to buy his book if your mother taught you. If you got these values, you know, and understandings, or even eavesdropped a little, and they were, they kind of bubbled in there until you got through your, you know, your pre-cortex forming at 25, and then they started, oh gosh, and you get to that place where mom was right, you know? Dad was right. Two of my favorite quotes. One is, I'm not young enough to know everything. Mm -hmm. And my second is the Mark Twain quote, which was, uh, when I was a boy of 16, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the man around. By the time I had turned 25, I was amazed at how much he'd learned. Exactly. So again, in talking to each other, there are ways that we can express our displeasure without attacking the person and then snuffing out the creativity and the awareness and the mindfulness, right? So it's all just take a breath and think about what you're saying, how you're saying, if you want to get something that is going to be the best from this person and individual. So I think for me, because the way that I was raised in this unique fashion by these remarkable people, it was that we just see something clearly, even before a Buddhist perspective, which is a philosophy of mind. It's about a science of the mind. The Buddha didn't set out to start a religion at all. That's not what his idea was. People did that later. And sometimes it's very beneficial, but it's truly a, a discipline, a science of the mind. And to see reality very clearly, see things as they are, not as we think them to be, without attaching our emotions to it, so for me, something arises, I've just been raised this way that, okay, this is an opportunity for a solution. So it's, it's a resiliency that was subconsciously, unconsciously developed. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm immensely grateful for that. I'm immensely grateful for this resilience, this being able to look at things with as little emotion 
emotion that would be paralyzing rather than just saying, okay, fine, no matter how terrible or awful or wonderful this is, this is an opportunity for a solution here. What are we going to do? Not how. I can figure out how. Let's just look as clearly as we can what the path of action is, the wisest path, and let's do it rather than you know, this mental monkey mind that jumps around and keeps us from doing anything. So I did that without knowing it, without having it told to me cognitively. So I don't think your question from, you know, what would I have told myself then? Really, in a way, it's not so facetious to say that I wouldn't have listened because I was already doing what I would have told myself to do. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. Now, not it, that I was always 100% doing the right thing. Believe me. I mean, I zigged, I zagged, I zigged, I zagged. I've been very good at accumulating money and I've been very good at losing it all and having to reinvent, you know, again. I mean, that's just my karma, it seems, because I'm not an accumulator. I Having a nonprofit is, I, it's a nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> 325-year-old mill house that... Uh, has a pond that needs dredging. So I, I will put in a plug. If anybody out there wants to help this beautiful nonprofit center dredge its pond, please see John and have him get in touch. Go to the-farmhouse.org. Yes, and get in touch. I want to talk about creativity. And you know, you're a musician, you are an artist, you are a creative soul. My question to you is, is everyone creative? Does everyone have the ability to be creative? Or is the myth that there are creative people and non-creative people, is that true? Well, I do believe it's a myth. I think, again, it's been something that people have decided that like, this separation, again, of subject and object, of the divisiveness between you and me, you know, people with brown eyes, <laughs> but it's the blue-eyed people who really are creative, you know. I mean, honestly, come on. No, I don't think so. Totally arbitrary. It's again, neurologically, you want to be doing this. I mean, our brain wants to work this way. It wants to have its own little Rolodex and it wants to put things in categories and it's more convenient. Unfortunately, we then take that into a, into a psychological, emotional, sociological arena and we start labeling in all sorts of ways. So to me, we have an innate creativity, just the fact that do you know, have any idea what your mitochondria are doing on a daily basis? Do you know what your liver is doing? Do you know what your stomach is doing? Do you know what your pancreas, your spleen, your heart? These are the most creative. When you get a cut, do you know how creative your white blood cells are? I mean, you can look at it that way. You, can, you don't have to look at it just through a purely, you know, Western medicine well, the cells, the white blood cells, the neutrophils and the macrophages, they know that, how do they know? Well, they just know. It's just what they do. <laughs> well, gosh, you know, I think they're pretty smart and pretty creative to know what kind of infection. Is it a pathogen, an internal, an external? Is it a cut? Is it a scrape? Is it a bee sting? They're going to know what cells to send to wherever. We are walking creativity. Absolutely. I think if we would stop and just appreciate the creativity that goes on every single day, and we don't even think about it, we take it so much for granted. And we should honor that. I mean, you get up and say, wow, I'm grateful that my body was so creative last night in my dream state. Those dreams are so incredibly creative. We shouldn't be dismissing them. Keep a dream journal. David Brenner taught me about that. He would keep a pad of paper, the great comedian, you know, brilliant fellow, by his bed. This is it. We're in the 70s. And he said, I always kept a pad of paper beside my bed because I would. Again, when you calm the mind down, 
creativity occurs. So oftentimes people are so busy with do, 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 do all day long. Now I know I just talked about that. I, I do things, but I do them mindfully. I stay present with what I am doing and I don't attach to a task, any emotional stuff that's going to keep me from what I need to take that first step of action. I'm very mindful as I am doing it and being present in that. So it can be much more productive. But when you calm all the external noise out, all this wonderful creativity will come in. If you if you have a garden, if you would like to be a gardener, that is a massive amount of creativity. Who says that you have to be an artist, a musician, a painter, a writer, a photographer, that that's the only type of, type of creativity? That's one kind of creativity. It's Again, we get into the same thing about intelligence, your IQ. Because if you can pass an SAT and get whatever, and they're not even called that anymore. I don't even know what they're called. You know, if you can get these scores that we know are biased and arbitrary, depending on your sociological and your environmental, as well as your physiological influences, da, 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 da. But there's a visual intelligence. Some people see better. There's an auditory intelligence. There's a mobility intelligence. There are all sorts of different kinds of intelligence. So there are different ways to be creative with all of these things. People who get up and go to work are incredibly creative about how they use their day and their parents with kids. They're very creative about how they are living their lives. So why do we have to say that we only honor creativity in the arts. That's a very beautiful and special kind of creativity that enriches our souls and makes us civilized. I truly believe, you know, there is no civilization without the arts. It touches us directly. It, it gets out of the cognitive noise and reaches up us as a, at a much deeper level of our humanity, of our compassion for people, for others. So we see each other as we share these universal stories and sometimes it's not all of us are as able to speak them. And some people speak them through painting, through photography, through music, through poetry, through novels. So they're speaking all these universal stories that we all have, that we all can tap into and say, oh my gosh, I felt the same way. Why do we weep at a movie? You know, it's touched us because we're empathizing with that because maybe something like that happened to you or someone you know or... Other people are just able to package it beautifully so that we can see it. You answered my follow-up question. I'll throw it out there anyway and make sure I got it right. My follow-up question was going to be, is there a way for somebody who kind of labels himself a non-creative to activate or improve their creativity? And what you said was quiet the mind, quiet mm -hmm. the mind and watch what happens. And don't label yourself. As soon as we start labeling ourselves, we're in trouble. I'm a this, you're a that, that imputes that if I'm this, there is an I'm not, or you're not. So no labeling, please. Things are just as they are. You know, because labeling, particularly in Western world, gets to be very judgmental. And it's very easy for people then to succumb to, in the West, is an esteem issue. You know, Tibetans have no word for self-esteem. There's just, it's not in the culture. I'm sure there are other countries and cultures that don't have that either, but it's a very Western concept of lack of self-esteem and particularly is inflicted on the American population and tragically so in many, many ways. So that is an absolutely brilliant segue into awareness, yes. the A in camp. 
can you be self-aware without self-labeling and being self-critical? Yes. How do you balance that? Well, who told you you should be in the first place? Self-aware? Yeah, who told you you should be critical? Who told you oh. you should be? Who told you anything other than you are a, a fabulous human being who is here on the planet? Wow. Wow. It was somebody else who labeled you as something that you're not, whether it came from peers or whether it came from parents, whether it came from other self and other. Typically, it is because of some environmental rather than developmental in utero kind of a thing. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it started in utero if mom really didn't want to have the baby or she was so mm. unhappy herself. You know, we know that epigenetics, certainly there's a, that's a big, big area to jump into, which we won't go into that pool right now. However, broad brush, usually it's someone who has said at some point in your life, at a time when someone is very susceptible, that you were not something. Oh, you can't sing, or you're not good at that, or you're only good at this. And all of a sudden, the self-talk starts. So depending on when that happens. And the more we do that kind of a negative self-talk, the more we convince our subconscious and unconscious mind that this is really the reality. Because our unconscious mind and subconscious mind, they're running the show. You think your conscious mind is? No, not at all. So that's why it is important to have these days in the West, although it doesn't happen in all cultures, but because we're also fed such negativity by what we feed our visual pathway and auditory pathway, either with this or with what we see online or movies or television or and news. I mean, all of these things that are advertisements that are not uplifting and positive. So if you don't take this into your hands to say, I am joy, I am loved, I am successful, I am creative. This is your mantra. This is, you know, a, a mantra, which is a Tibetan kind of, it's not a prayer, but these are things that, mantras are, are mind protectors in Tibetan Buddhism. They protect your mind from those negative thoughts. That's why that you don't even have to know what Omane Pemi Hong means particularly. It's just you repeat it and repeat it, although it's a mantra of compassion, ultimate compassion. And having that towards ourselves is the first thing. Be kinder to ourselves. Just be kinder. Give yourself a break. Why are you judging yourself? I did it to myself. It was my father, again, up in the hills with the communists, listening to them, to because he was the head of Longshoremen's Union. And they wanted to infiltrate the unions at that time. And he said, I listened to him. Now, this is, you know, somebody who is America, my way or the highway, but he said, I'll listen to anybody. And he did. And he said, I listened to them. And then I told him to get the hell out of my country. Because he listened mindfully, carefully, with awareness. He didn't judge them. He didn't think he was, he just listened to what they said. He appreciated them as human beings. He didn't label them. It was their ideas that he wasn't crazy about, okay? That this, you know, isn't what I believe or what I feel belongs in my country of democracy. The same thing for ourselves. You know, there's just, we can listen to anything and just pick it. No, that doesn't, no, no, that's not who I am. I am loved. I am healthy. I am joyous. I am mindful. I am compassionate. I am creative. You tell yourself that every day. I am grateful. I mean, one of the most, I feel, if we start and end our day in gratitude, that's one of the best things that we can do and be grateful that we're even here to have this conversation about this. You've been so gracious and kind around my acronym, but what's your definition of awareness? Well, mine is being aware, number one, of your own mind, being mm -hmm. aware of your own thoughts, being aware of your own projections, 
your own perceptions, your own biases towards yourself first. Because if you're not kinder and aware of yourself first, you're going to put all that on to the other person. You won't be able to see them and be aware of who they are just as they are. It isn't the phrase, oh, it is what it is. No, 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 no. It is as it is. Just a little shift there. Things are as they are without me putting anything on them. You know, a bucket of water, right, to an ant is an ocean. To a horse, it's a cool drink. To me, it's something that I will put water in to wash my car. So our perception makes it what it is. So if we're not very clear and just seeing it, and sometimes that bucket of water can be something I'm going to, you know, throw on John for fun. (laughs) So funny, but maybe he won't, you know. So being aware truly of what things are and being aware of our own thoughts, being aware of what am I going to say right now? Is this going to be something that is going to be positive, kind, compassionate, beneficial to the listener? And by the way, let me be aware of truly aware of my listener, my audience as well. But we can't be aware of that until we're more aware of where we're standing or sitting or wherever, you know, we are. So that awareness, I think, starts here first. And then, yes, then we can put it out to having a more honest and clear, have clarity of awareness for what else is happening in the room. Because if we go in and we're attached to our ego and we haven't really checked, again, our ego at the door, right? It's going to cloud our awareness of what's happening in the room. So it starts, I think, here first. And then, yes, of course, being aware of, you know, this is, you know, a man walks into a room with a really red face. There are three people sitting at a table. One of them is petrified. And the one thinks they're going to be fired. The other one thinks, oh, my gosh, having a stroke. The other one thinks, oh, gosh, there's a man with a red face. That's all. Right? Wow. Sure. If we're not aware of just seeing things as they are, and then being very careful of our interpretations of those things, we're very careful. So that awareness then goes into the mindfulness aspect, being mindful of our thoughts, being mindful of our speech, being mindful of our actions and knowing everything we say, we think we do, it takes practice. It takes practice, practice, practice. And I was going to ask you, do you have a mindfulness practice? Do you meditate? Do you do pranayama? How do you quiet your mind? Well, just staying present is, is a wonderful way. Being here doesn't make it, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and it gets very easy to get hooked in, you know, even at this point, but I, I'm aware that I get hooked faster, you know, than I was before, right? In, in some of the emotions of, of a conventional reality, shall we say, so that when we were doing a lot of driving, right, uh, if somebody cut me off, Instead of getting upset, maybe they are in a medical emergency. Maybe they are this, maybe they are that. Rather than presuming that I know what's going on with that person and they're doing it to me, ego, ego, right? So being more mindful of those things. Actually, it's something that I practice every second of every day of being present because you have to practice. You didn't ride a bicycle the first time you got on your bicycle. This is even more difficult because your mind is being bombarded by all sorts of things, not just from the present, but from the past that we haven't let go of and from future suffering that we haven't even, we have no control over, but we're already living in in some non-reality, right? So it's staying here in the present. So it's just breathing, a breathing practice throughout the day. I'll just take a nice deep breath. Now I used to do, it resets your glucocorticoids, 
restrets your phys- physiologically, it's going to reset things for you. And it's going to reset your neurotransmitter. And you just take a nice, just a break, just a breath. Now, I do recommend in my practice that people do this three times a day just to get started. Because again, people could label, a, oh, a Buddhist meditation practice means that I have to say those funny words. And what about my Christian or my Muslim? No, 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 no. Buddhism isn't like that at all. And the Dalai Lama says, all of us, please don't call yourself a Buddhist. Don't just take what's good for you. Leave the rest. And if it isn't good for you, forget all about it. There's no attachment here. It's logic. If it works, if you see that it works logically and is beneficial, like with anything else we do in life, then incorporate it. So a breathing practice is breathe in 10 times deeply, in slowly, out slowly, 10 times, count to 10 or eight or nine, whatever your favorite number is. Don't get attached to the number, but recognize when a thought comes in, they're just like the clouds in the sky. You can't hold on to them. Or a flock of birds that goes, you know, just so visualize is some people need a visualization to do that. They can't without it or just count. Or just when you're doing the dishes, do the dishes. Just do the dishes. That is a mindfulness practice. When you're walking up the steps, walk up the steps. I cannot tell you how many times I laugh at myself because I know exactly if I trip on a step, it was because for that moment, I started thinking about any number of other things. And I laugh because I literally know it now. That's what I've done to myself. When walking on the steps, walk on the steps. When driving a car, drive your car. Don't be on the phone. Don't be this or that. Drive the car. Be present with John now. He's been so wonderful and kind to give me so much time. Thank you. Just the opposite. You are amazing. Let's get through these last two letters. Passion. Oh my gosh. Well, if you haven't seen it in me by now, I don't know. I mean, really. (laughs) It comes out of your pores. Because it's life. This is a precious gift. No matter what it is or what circumstance. I have been in the horrors of war, which are just that. I have been in the most joyous moments, the birth of my children, the actual having that birth. Sorry, you guys can't experience that because there's nothing like it. That is one of the most, even in the midst of that, the pain, the joy of that. And of course, you do see it if you've had, you know, kids, those who have or those who haven't had children. There are other things that give that immense awareness of the, whether it's taking the time to look at the clouds, you know, and realize, and for the rain, you know, you got to have rain. You won't have beautiful white clouds if we don't have some rain. You know, it all works together. So being grateful for all of these things and understanding that we have the opportunity in this human life. If Oprah Winfrey can overcome what she overcame at the grandest scale, right? Right. There are people who are doing that every single day of their lives, overcoming and seeing their obstacles as opportunities that how could you not have a passion for, for life, for being able to be here, to be and know people like that? You're here and you can know the His Holiness that he even exists, whether you meet him or not, or Martin Luther King, or whoever, Roberto Clemente. Oh my gosh, you know, my goodness. Passion, being passionate. Can you find passion? Well, yes, of course you can. We're just little newborn babes, you know, we're it's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> what is all of this? And then as we move along, you know, there are things that I feel, of course, people are drawn as they grow. Naturally, there are things that why do people really gravitate to loving baseball rather than football or 
really loving this kind of music? Is it the Rolling Stones or is it the Beatles? You know, the big, just the big debate. It can be both. It can be both. It doesn't have to be either or. I'm more of the, the Renaissance type of a person. Let's do it all. Let's be like Da Vinci, right? Why not? You know, just because there's so much there. There's such a bounty at the table. You're not so much. So it's just having a proclivity to something, something, you know, that you, oh gosh, I really like that can develop into a passion or immediately is a passion. Sometimes there is just that immediate connection. It's that je ne sais quoi. I, you know, it's that other little thing going on in that I don't need to analyze and put under a microscope because if it brings you joy, if it brings others joy. You know, if your purpose, you have to be passionate about it. And it has to be something I feel that brings the world joy and is a benefit, whatever way. It doesn't mean, as they say, my parents, I know their names, their friends know their names, but were they on every newspaper anywhere? They're, were they big? You know, but the, again, the ledger of their daily life was absolutely remarkable. They had a passion. My mother had a passion for teaching. She had a passion for education and helping kids, high school kids. She was, you know, that was her thing was high school. My father had a passion for electrical engineering and, and building something. He converted the Hoboken shipyard from gas to electricity. That's when he was around. He had a passion for building, a passion for creating these things. This is a guy, as they say, self-taught, self-taught. Amazing because of his passion for that. So was he born with that? No, he had to learn that, that but he had a proclivity toward that and it became a passion. Uh, people have a passion for travel. They have a passion for whatever. So I think there has to be a proclivity, a natural, whatever that means, a uh, proclivity towards something that can then develop. I think sometimes people don't give them the opportunity to do so. I don't know why, you know, and you can have more than one and it can change. And your passion isn't always your vocation. No, we wish it were. We should I was saying, not everyone is that lucky, it's right? Wonderful, wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, that would be just so fabulous. What I'm trying to impart on the listener is that might not be your passion. So take a little pressure off yourself, okay? Maybe, maybe you're in a job that you you're not super passionate about data entry. Take a little pressure off yourself. Find something you are passionate about. Let that feed right. your soul. If there's, if there's a purpose, though, purpose and passion can be quite different. If there is a purpose, the purpose of me doing this data entry is because I know what my purpose is. The purpose is that it is going to take care of me so that I can do whatever else. It's a stepping stone to something else. Or if this is where I'm going to be, it's paying these bills and it's providing health care, which is really big, which will allow me then to explore something that is going to be a passion in my life. And not close the door thinking, oh, well, I just, that, I, that word, I wish it would be struck from the English language. I'm just a, it's just a. No, there's no just a anything. It's all magical and miraculous. It all is. It just, it's how you choose to look at it and be grateful. And again, we get back to that word gratitude and all of this. I feel there's an underlying component of, of of gratitude for whatever it is, that you are able to be there and do what you're doing when the awareness of, of what is happening in the world, not just at this time, in the times that have come before us. I mean, we're not in the greatest of time anyway. This is not there. We have much work to do, but we're here to be able to do that. So maybe your passion is going to be that, or maybe it's just in one small little but it's not even that it's small because there is, of course, in chaos theory, Edward Lorenz, right? 
the butterfly, absolutely. It's, you know, wherever the butterfly happens to be, there's going to be effects everywhere. So all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions, you have no idea. I had no idea that I was the savior of someone I was, who was going to commit suicide. I just happened to be the person who called him that day. Could have been anybody else. I just happened to think of my friend Pinky. What a great name, Pinky. This was in the 70s. <laughs> an amazing fellow. I said, you know, I haven't spoken to Pinky in a while. I haven't seen him around. Let me just give him a call. Now, did I get some kind of, you know, extrasensory perception? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. doesn't really matter. I just picked up the phone and I called him. And we chatted. Years later, he saw me on the street and he said, you have no idea what was happening to me that day. So the smallest things that we do, let's be mindful of the fact of how we can affect everything in the world when we come from, you know, being more aware, being more mindful, having passionate about people, about ourselves, you know, I mean, this is a beautiful thing. Possibilities everywhere. Let's wrap up by talking about people. You are such people a people are so person. interesting, aren't they? Well, they are, but you are so invested in people. They're everywhere, right? Everywhere you look, the people. <laughs> and they're dogs and cats and butterflies and caterpillars and snapping turtles. I'm very passionate about all sentient beings. I'm very passionate about all of them because we are all here together. There is no inherent difference. We think that we are this self. William Blake, no man, you're right, right? No man is an island. No man is an island. No woman is either. No being is. I don't exist here without you. I don't exist here without whoever did the cotton, grew the cotton to make my shirt, right? The farmer in the fields who grows my food, the everybody, we're all, nobody exists in and of themselves. No one. So when you wonder, no one, even the ones that we love and the ones we're not so crazy about, we are all interconnected. The ones that we have experienced in our lives and the ones that we have not. When you are aware of this truth, it is a logical truth. I mean, you can just examine, 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 you know, and it's also your mother and your grandmother and your great grandmother on both sides, you know, all of these all of this is who we are, and we've, we are really, our creativity has been this massive collaboration, right? Of all of these influences, we think we come up with this one great, brilliant idea. It's been a, a collaboration of generations to get us to where we are, to have that thought. When I look at you, I have a, actually a wonderful research PhD. When I talk to him, he says, you know, Barbara, when I see you, I just see all your bacteria. And boy, are they beautiful today. <laughs> you know, we are trillions of bacteria. We are just the host, if you understand this. There are more organisms living in us than anything else, really. I mean, there are. There are trillions of bacteria. Go check it out yourself. If you don't believe me, please, you don't have to believe I me. I completely so, believe you. There are bacteria, and we are the host. And they are there doing all sorts of things, you know. We're walking around just these massive colonies. So if we would just take a little larger view and see, go back, you know, maybe to Pluto and look at Gaia and see that we are just the little organisms that are on Gaia. We're all part of the whole. We in the West, particularly, this is where I, the words modern civilization to me, sometimes that's a contradiction in terms. We might be modern, but I don't know how civilized we are anymore because we've lost these awarenesses of our unity with everything, with everything. And it's so important, I feel, that we. Keep that in our mindfulness 
every day, all day long. Every encounter you have with somebody on the street, in the elevator, at work, being aware that our interconnectedness is a beautiful thing and we can't exist without it and we haven't existed without it. And if you can really be mindful of that on a regular basis, it does generate profound compassion. Now, it doesn't mean that you like everything that somebody else is doing or saying and they all become your best bud. No, <laughs> you know, no, because everybody is at a different place on the path. But we don't exist without them. We don't. Or without any of the plants or the animals or all the other things that are out there. But we've gotten into this thing of, of this, like, this separation, which is this dualism, this divisiveness that we see now in this country at its worst. This is where it goes. It goes down the path where we are now. As soon as we can start to say self and other, then we see there's something different and maybe that difference is bad. It really isn't, I feel, a bad thing. It's just that we're afraid. That creates a fear. We're afraid of other. Two reasons people do things. They do it out of fear, hatred, anger. Typically underneath all of that is fear and love. We've got people, you know, in powerful situations and these wars that have been going on forever and ever and ever because somebody said, you're different than I am. So you are not as human as I am. That's a bunch of BS. So we've got to get rid of that and understand our interconnectedness. And then we see all of these people are vital. We don't love them all, all the time. Sometimes they do really terrible things, but sometimes they don't. I got to tell you, I don't, I think that might be where to end it is on that. But if you had kind of one you know, parting shot, what would you, what would you leave them with? Well, I would be thankful and very grateful that they've taken the time to listen to any of this. I would be grateful if they found any benefit that they could utilize in their lives on a daily basis, if they could find any, any little nugget in there that might be beneficial in the workplace or Again, seeing that there may be maybe the possibility that there is no separation from your life and work. Work is life. Let's, you know, let's not live to work, but we work to live. And maybe just look at things just a little bit differently. Consider the possibilities of looking at something possibly in a slightly different way than you're used to doing. Walk up the steps instead of with your left foot all the time. Try your right foot, you know, instead of putting your hands together and your thumbs are this way, where are they? Put them that way. You know, just shake it up a little bit. Find novelty. Right. So just look at something just from a different perspective. Be open to the possibilities that, that Oliver Cromwell once said, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, consider the fact that you may be wrong. And it's okay. And it's, it's all okay. okay. And be kinder to yourself. The more we are kinder, we will be more creative. We will be more productive in whatever part of our lives. And, and I would just say, you know, thanks for putting up with all of my meandering. I cannot thank you enough for the time you've given me and the listeners. Seriously, thank you so very much. You're extremely welcome. And I'm very grateful. My name's John Ziegler. This is The Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Setup Camp with two Ps on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 